And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, world. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. We are here with a new series that Maggie has titled... Oh, crap. What did I title it? I I made up that title like 10 seconds ago. (laughs) Something about looking through the decades, my friends. We're looking through the decades. I I got it. I got it. It's bit-sized bits (laughs) through the decades. Oh, yeah. Bite-sized bits through the decades. Sure. We'll go with that. Um, and Maggie, do you want to explain a little bit about what this new concept and series is? Yeah, so this is something that I guess for us will technically span through the rest of season one and the first half of our season two. Um, just looking, uh, because it's 2020, you know, new decade, looking at prominent feminist works that had come out at the beginning of each decade until we hit 2020. So there will ultimately be 10 episodes, uh, but we'll be mostly looking at short format stuff. So like short stories and comic books and things that aren't like full length novels necessarily. Yes. Which we're doing in some of our other episodes too, but this is like the cool thing is it, it yeah, it spans through the decades. <laughs> yeah. So right now we're starting with 1910. Is that correct? Or no, is 1920. It 19- right. So it's 20, 1920 through 2020. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And what are we reading today? So we're going to be talking about the first chapter of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton because she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for this novel. Uh, And it came out in 2020. She technically won the prize in 1921 because of that. But like this was the year that it was written. And also it's just one of my favorite books. Harmony's also read it. Did you also enjoy it? I feel like you did, right? I did. It's been a little while. Even reading this first, yeah, even reading this first chapter, I was like, oh, I don't really remember anything that happens in this book. But yeah, I think I enjoyed it. Um, I liked it a lot better than Ethan Frome, which was the only other Edith Wharton book I had read up until this point. So yeah, Ethan Frome is an acquired taste. I won't lie. (laughs) But speaking of the fact that you don't remember what The Age of Innocence is about, let me give you a summary. Although I will say, Usually our summaries and our episodes are spoilery, but because in this episode we're only talking about the first chapter of the novel, we will not be spoiling anything in the summary or just in our general discussion. So if you haven't read the novel, I do highly encourage that you do. It is really, really good. Um, And if you have read the novel and you feel like our opinions are wrong, it's because we're only talking about what the readers have context for at this point and not how things change throughout the book, you know? So let's see. I grabbed this summary off Penguin Random House. So thanks, Penguin Random House. For, Yay! For giving us a summary. Yeah, for writing this. All right. One of Edith Wharton's most famous novels, the first by a woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, exquisitely details a tragic struggle between love and responsibility in Gilded Age New York. Newland Archer, an aristocratic young lawyer, is engaged to the cloistered, beautiful May Welland. But when May's cousin Ellen arrives from Europe, fleeing her failed marriage to a Polish count, her worldly and independent nature intrigues and unsettles Archer. 
trapped by his passionless relationship with May and the social conventions that forbid a relationship with a disgraced Ellen, Archer is torn between possibility and duty. Wharton's profound understanding of her character's lives makes the triangle of Archer, May, and Ellen both urgent and poignant. An incisive look at the ways desire and emotion must negotiate the complex rules of society. The Age of Innocence is one of Wharton's most moving works. Okay, Mad, so what's up next? <laughs> so I guess we've touched on this a little bit already, but I am I am a little curious. It has been a long time for both of us since we've read this novel. For me, I think even longer than you. Much longer. I'm assuming, because yeah, I read it this yeah. past year. <laughs> oh, right. You read it, like, actually kind of recently. Yeah, I read this book for the first time quite a while ago. So what was your impressions of the first chapter? The first time reading it? The second time. The second time? I think that it... I, I'd kind of forgotten what the first chapter was like. And then reading it again, I was kind of struck by all of the the talk of the old and the new, like old society and new society and how arbitrary it all seemed. And part of that is because I've read the rest of the novel, so it was really hard for me to take it outside of context. I also felt like reading it again and reading it for Rebel Girls Book Club, I was like, wow, there's like no female characters speaking and the females are all objects. (laughs) And it is, it's strange too, because we don't even meet Newland until like four par- paragraphs in and he's our main character. So I was like looking at the opera and I was like, why is she talking so much about the opera? And then what does this say about what Wharton is trying to do? Because Wharton is very satirical in this novel, kind of, I think. I would say a little bit. Her whole thing, like her entire career is based around the fact that she is savaging, essentially, this like high class society um and she is very almost impressively for the time but we can get into that more later aware of the class struggles and the class differences between the elite and the lower class and how ridiculous most of the like high class things are so i would agree with you like i think that that stuff gets pointed out because it is arbitrary and for some reason people still care so much Much about it yeah yeah and it's all like drama which i think is important because this society deals primarily with drama and like falsehoods i don't know that's really what i caught from it what did you get honestly because it's been so long since i read the book part one my frustration with Newland Archer just like came back with a vengeance because I personally, as much as I loved this book, I find his attitude towards life and woman to be very frustrating, um, which I think is part of his point. Like this is very much a book that's uh, about the way that women have such different double standards in society (laughs) essentially so it really reignited how just frustrated I was with him and it also reading it specifically with a feminist lens made me really think about the way that Wharton uses her narrators um like her omniscient third person narrators as very clever barbs at her characters I feel like with her, you can really see what she thinks of the people she's writing about, because she does not seem like the kind of author that she writes about her darlings, you know? Like, she's really, for the most part, writing about people she hates, Mm -hmm. and I caught on to that at the beginning of this first chapter way faster than I did the first time that I read the book, you know? Yeah, I think the first time that I read the book, I didn't pick up on any of that, 
It was only after having the context of the book. From this first chapter, like what we know of Newland Archer, what would you like characterize him as? Like, are there any like modern sort of fuckboy equivalents to Newland that we can take from just this characterization in this first chapter? I feel like this whole, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say. Partially because I really don't keep up with our pop culture that much, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, but I would say that in many ways, he's kind of just like, he's. it's almost like YouTube society, where it's like all of these really rich people who care a lot about aesthetics. And like, this is not to, to bash social media or the societies that they create, but he does remind me a little bit of, of someone who's like, not super prominent in in some sort of like big pop culture scene, but he's like there and he knows what's expected of him. And he's really, he chafes against what's expected of him, but he is also really critical of everyone else with that same lens, you know? Yes, yes. Which, I don't know, I think kind of reminds me of a lot of men that I've dated where you're like, yeah, he does what he, what's expected of him, but he's critical of everyone else who does it. And he thinks he's kind of above everyone else. I think in my notes, I wrote like, there was something he was talking about, like how stupid all of these uh, rules for high class society were. And I was like, every young person ever. Because <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm a part of the newer class and I have a newer mind of thought. But um, as a big Gossip Girl fan, when I was reading this book originally last year, <laughs> um, I was keeping Gossip Girl in mind because they do Age of Innocence in one of the episodes, like as a school play. And even though the characters didn't really match like Gossip Girl characters, he reminded me a lot of Nate Archibald, who is like... I know Maggie doesn't really keep up with Gossip Girl, even though I tried to get her into it. She was once into it, by the way. Let the record be known. But Nate Archibald is like this, uh, like very pretty, kind of dumb character. But he like he's born into richness, and he just like doesn't really know what to do with all of his privilege, and he's constantly like annoyed by his privilege and like by the upper class lifestyle, and is more of like a man of the people in a lot of ways, or tries to be. But ultimately, like, his character arc in the show of Gossip Girl, spoilers for Gossip Girl, is that he ends up, like, caving to his family's expectations and just, like, becoming what he was always supposed to be anyway. So. Yeah, I could see that. I I agree. And I think, so, this novel as a whole really deals heavily with what society expects you to do and what the society in high class sort of situations that... Wharton is writing about the path it expects you to take um, and not deviating from that path. And I'm wondering, Newland is only concerned with his own thoughts and feelings on what the norm is in chapter one, both how it affects him, but also specifically how mostly the women around him are upholding that while he's at the opera. Uh, and I'm wondering, what do you, what do you think that says about Wharton's opinions on self-centeredness? Um, I kind of want the question to be, what do you think that says about Wharton's opinions on men? But I feel like it's also kind of difficult when we're only dealing with one chapter with one perspective because there's nothing to like push it against. Yeah. So at the very least, like, what do we take away from this from Newland? You know, like he's very self-centered. Yeah. So do you mean when you're talking about like the woman who are upholding certain things like we we know about his engagement in the first chapter correct yeah right and the part of his part of his pushback 
to society expectations is about his engagement in the first chapter. No, okay. Well, we'll cut that out then. Um, so, so what, what's happening like, in the first chapter is he's he's looking at all of the different opera boxes because he's at the opera, but you don't watch yeah. the opera and you don't get there on time. And what he's doing is he's essentially looking at all of the different women and all of the different opera bo- opera boxes and like setting the societal image mm-hmm. up by like commenting on what each of them is wearing and what they're doing and how they're looking at he- how he thinks they're looking at the opera okay okay yeah i didn't pick up on that i mean i guess i picked up on the fact that may was like the shining gold star and like the shining purity sort of thing like she's wearing white and stuff (laughs) i don't know i don't know what that says about archer i guess that yeah he's like he's using woman as a means to like moralize his world is that (laughs) is that correct professor maggie (laughs) Is he, like, using them as a way to, like, set his own morals up, but not, like, being at all self-reflective? Yeah, I think so. I think that it shows some deep hypocrisy in him, because he is chafing about all of this stupid stuff he has to do, but then he's looking around and he's giving it straight back. And mostly Mm -hmm. to the woman. He interacts with one man um, at the very end of this chapter, but, like... He does not get the same kind of judgment that the ladies that he's looking at do. (laughs) And it's just very strange and a very self-centered way of looking at the world. Which, like... In matters intellectual and artistic, Newland Archer felt himself distinctly the superior of these chosen specimen of old New York gentility. He had probably read more, thought more, and even seen a good deal more of the world than any other man of the number. Singly, they betrayed their inferiority, but grouped together, they represented New York, and the habit of masculine solidarity made him accept their doctrine on all the issues called moral. So... That, I feel like, has a lot to unpack and kind of, like, sums up for us what Newland is doing at the opera and kind of sums up for us maybe Warren's feelings about Newland because he is being hypocritical and he does look down on the rest of the world. And he does look down on other men. He just goes along with it, though, because he is a man. He's supposed to do that. That's true. He does talk a lot. There's a really long passage at the end that I want to super dissect, but in it he also mentions this, like, it's like a masculine club, almost, where it's like, well, you know, if all the other men are doing it, you know, or like, I get to do this because I'm a man and I'm masculine. Um, I Something I'm interested, though, just because of the time period that this is talking about, where uh, he's part of the new set, but I don't remember how old he actually is. Is he supposed to be in his 20s or in his, like, early 30s? Because either of because either of those is really an option. Because I think May is, like, May is young. young. I think yeah, she's if I definitely in her 20s. I don't remember how old he is. Maybe it tells me. It, it just doesn't in the young show. lawyer. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just curious thinking about it. Because, like, I totally agree with you that there's certain things that Newland says where it's like, yeah, right, every generation kind of feels like this about the generation before them. And, like, they're doing things all wrong. And, like, we're going to do it better, you know? Um, but I think that the way we think about that tends to be more of, like, a an early to mid-20s or, like, a teenage sort of thing. 
Yeah. And, but but that's not, I don't think, the age that Newland is at. I think he's a no. little bit older than that. I think he's like late 20s, early 30s. So I just find it interesting. Well, I think that he's still considered a young person. And that's like what the society, especially because he's unmarried. But I think what little I do know of this time period, like they weren't getting married necessarily in their early 20s or if they were it was always women because men well, needed to like go out and prove themselves first yeah that's my that's the point i'm trying to make is oh, that okay. like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah sorry i'm, I'm i was getting like, he was still considered societally a young person i think like in the way I'm, that we consider we consider 30 year olds young today we do but i think that we also consider them to have slightly different mindsets than the way people in their early 20s or like their late teens tend to think that's and I fair. think it's interesting because at this time period, simultaneously, someone in their late 20s, early 30s is part of the young set, mm-hmm. but then is also considered to be like a real full-fledged 100% adult who is then yet being pressured to marry someone who is like quite a few years younger than them to the point where generationally yeah. at the time they're looked at being in like two different places. And I think you kind of see that with the way he looks at May later, like he looks at her as being infantile. And is, like, weirdly sort of attracted to that. (laughs) Um, But then also not attracted to that simultaneously. Yeah, she's Um, too innocent. She hasn't lived enough of her life. Yeah. also comes because he, like, he only views women in this very, like, two-dimensional sort of way. And he has has trouble, like, seeing them in a full-fledged sort of way. And he has trouble really questioning their motivations and their thoughts. Because he can't imagine women having, like, agency outside of him. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Which I think is really interesting because he sees them, I think there's an, he sees them as two-dimensional in the way that you're thinking about it as, like, flat as a piece of paper. But there's also kind of two separate ways, like, two distinct ways he thinks about them as being two-dimensional. So there's one where, like, they're really concerned with looks and vanity, and then there's the other where there's, and that, and the first one is, like, young people who are just kind of, like, really young there to, like, get married and be seen and do all of that. And then there's, like, the older people who are wives who have thoughts and feelings and, like, that's really what you want, but you have to bring them from point A to point B, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's how he views May a little bit with the infantile thing, I think. For sure. But I'm curious because he doesn't seem to see the irony in implying that all of these women that he's seeing are super vain because he's really vain. Like, he mm-hmm. talks a lot about his appearance and how he's, like, super respectable and stuff. So I'm kind of curious in a society that is so desperately centered on vanity perhaps even more than our society is, although that's kind of a bold statement with the whole social media situation. Um, How do we view what it means to be a feminist? Like, how do we create an image of feminism when, when this whole vanity is part of this first chapter and this book as a whole? I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just curious. It struck me this time around. That is, yeah. I'm curious about that too, because this, book came out when did women get the right to vote was it 1919 or was it 1920 google will tell me google's gonna yeah. tell but this book came out like right when women got the right to vote i don't know though having known maggie this long and maggie has a lot of expertise on Wharton, whether or not Wharton considered herself a feminist she did not yeah i think by the societal standpoint like it wasn't it definitely and this this book takes place before like before the 1920s. So I 
I don't know. It was 1920. That, like, it was 1920. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like feminism is really mainstream in this society, at least. And I don't know if it would have been for Wharton at all. And I don't know if being a feminist during this time period meant anything but, like, being a suffragette on the lines trying to get the right to vote. I think that's super fair. And I think sometimes, as moder- as a modern reader, I occasionally have trouble grappling with that when I'm reading texts that are this old. Is it's like, I want to be able to take my feminist lens and just, like, zoop, zoop it straight onto it <laughs> yeah with exactly that noise that's how i read in a feminist lens when i'm at home by myself i go zoop, zoop. um but like there are adjustments that you have to to make and i i think it's interesting that you bring up i was gonna wait until later than the episode to talk about this <laughs> no but since it, but it's since it came up already so harmony mentioned the fact that i have some expertise on wharton i'm not an expert on wharton um and as you all know i share less of my like personal life with the podcast but Wharton was a major part of the beginning of my career so I worked with her works every single day for about three years so I'm not like a seminal expert or anything don't get me wrong but I do have a lot of background knowledge so this stuff isn't like for the most part pulled from the internet in any place like in some of our episodes where we cite stuff like this is just coming from my brain and expertise but there are things that I learned researching for this episode. So I knew going into it that Wharton did not consider herself aligned with the current feminist movement. But every single scholar, or not every single, most scholars agree that her works end up being kind of feminist because they're dealing with stuff that we deal with now, you know? And it was actually a huge thing from the 50s to the 80s because of this article that was published called The Feminist Takeover of Edith Wharton, which is a doozy. Um, and so there was a lot of pushback about where she... Because I think that if feminism was defined differently, potentially, when she was writing these novels, maybe she would have considered herself a feminist, you know? Yeah. Um, because what a lot of people, it seems like, have come to a lot of scholars have have decided almost is that there's something called lurking feminism which is sometimes considered to be a good thing and sometimes considered to be a bad thing but essentially what it means is that there's all of these feminist concerns that we see throughout history that weren't being talked about openly at the time Mm -hmm. emerging in her work so it's weird because she didn't consider herself a feminist but looking back on it it's kind of easy to be like whoa 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 wait like this stuff was all here yeah like she was critiquing all of it uh and the article that i'm referencing right now is called the emergence of edith wharton by marilyn french which was published by the new republic in 1981 so it's a little bit dated and i don't agree with everything that it says in it but i think that idea of lurking feminism and the fact that there were lots of feminist thoughts in these novels is something to contend with you know, like, how how do we define it or her then with all of these conflicting things? I don't have an answer for that, but the concept of lurking feminism that you introduce, introduced what makes me want to go back to, like, the first part of your question about feminism within this novel and, like, what a feminist looks like in this novel. You introduced that question by talking about, like, a society so focused on vanity, and I think from this first chapter, like what we see Newland's ideas and thoughts about women 
in this chapter, like we were talking about, like making them too dimensional and not being able to like see how vain he is really does strike me as being something that we deal with today in ways maybe that we don't realize because yes, we have words like feminism now that are mainstream and we can talk about it. But like, I feel like almost every man I know struggles with body image, but then also there's a lot of body image put on like the girl that he dates, right? There's a huge community out there who doesn't want to date plus size woman because they feel that it threatens their masculinity and like their image of themselves. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of women are dictated, a lot of feminist women are dictated by the way that, you know, they want men to see them. I think, I feel like these societal structures are still at play and men very much, very much modern men who may even consider themselves feminists do still look at women and see them as like objects that determine morality for them right? There's the good girl that they're going to marry. There is the slut. And even if it's not as, um, as like visible as that in, in their mind, right? I, it's still playing out. I think hookup culture, we can see that even if you're trying to do it ethically. Like, I think these things still very much play out in everyday society and are the undercurrent of everything. <laughs> I agree. And I think that to a certain extent, they've gotten more complex um as time has gone on because the vanity in this society is at least what we see a little bit at the beginning of this novel is it's broken down into are you wearing the right clothes are you with the right people Mm -hmm. and essentially are you classically beautiful or not which i think is something also interesting when you consider the fact that wharton at the time was not considered to be an attractive woman oh i didn't know that yeah, quite the opposite. Actually, she was ruthlessly teased as a kid for her looks, especially because she was sickly as a kid. And even as an adult, like, she was not considered an attractive lady. So I think it's interesting that she, I think she has a unique perspective criticizing that aspect of things. Because as someone who's been on the butt end of it, so to speak, she's really able, I think, to drive a needle into this, like, what vanity does to the way we look at others. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's very like reminiscent of like the the average high school experience, I would say, or middle school experience for people. It's all image based. And like as someone that lives in New York, I kind of thought that the image based stuff because I I lived in rural places before that and like with kind of down to earth people for the most part. But like coming to New York, I didn't think that image mattered so much as an adult, and it really does. Like, I'm constantly meeting people who are very, very concerned with their image and, like, the people that they're hanging out with and, you know, the way that they present themselves physically and stuff like that. Interesting. Because <laughs> I feel like as an adult, I've had almost the opposite experience. And, I mean, I live in the greater Seattle area where, like, especially things like fashion and stuff like that are much chiller. So I almost wonder if it's partially a geographic thing right like you're in new york the book takes place in new york like what is it about new york that it's just capitalism it's capitalism maggie new york <laughs> has wall street that is why so there's a lot more jeff bezos you have jeff bezos that's true but i feel like the west kind of prides itself on being like more hippy dippy and like you know a little oh, bit sure. more woke so like they're they're supposed to be less image based i don't think that's always true as someone who has also lived in the west but yeah I think that, like that could exist more like 
people at least pretend to not care about status. The the image is pretending not to care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that point? Or do you want to move on to your next point? Maggie's really leading this episode, you guys. <laughs> Sorry, I just get I just get really excited about Edith Wharton and I haven't since I left the aforementioned job, I haven't had much time to like really dig deep into her again so i'm excited to be able to really kind of talk about her we talked about that and that so i want to start diving into the whole like pure woman thing here because he mentions it not just about may although that's where he centers it but he Mm -hmm. talks about a lot of other women as also looking pure um what do we think that actually means (laughs) because he doesn't give very much context for it because you were right when you mentioned that part of May's like signal that she's supposed to be pure is that she's wearing white, but he yeah. also uses the word purity, I think like four different times in this chapter. So he's like mentally aware of it, but doesn't give lots of qualifiers for what that actually is. Means. You know, he just kind of starts throwing the world word around. So I wanted to get your take on what you thought a pure woman would be as defined by Newland Archer. I didn't notice that he was mentioning it left and right, but I would say that a pure woman, and maybe this is like a really basic analysis, it was hard for me to analyze this chapter, you guys, but I think that it would definitely be like somebody virginal and somebody innocent, especially because I was looking at Mei as the um, the epitome of pure and moral, somebody who hasn't yet been touched by society maybe in the same way there's a lot of talk about how her dress is she like does she kind of dress kind of plain in this chapter or no i don't think so okay that might be mentioned later on spoilers (laughs) but like i don't think she's super like into the latest fashion she's not gaudy is my impression of may Yeah, so she's like, she's kind of untouched by a lot of things and she's innocent and she hasn't like begun to think about, she hasn't begun to question her own world yet in the way that Newland has. At the very least, Newland doesn't think so, to be fair, because we're getting, this whole chapter is from his perspective. Yeah, Um, you don't know that. (laughs) Which is interesting because he keeps comparing her and himself with like these flower metaphors like he's very he's very fixated on the flowers and like picked flowers too i'm not talking about like flowers from the ground and all i keep thinking is that like a flower that has been brought into a building has been touched and has been molded by society yeah (laughs) your love isn't blooming anymore it's died yeah so it just had a chance (laughs) (laughs) i'm just getting upset now i think something that you mentioned that's really important though is the fact that a pure woman is also to put it more plainly than you did a stupid woman in his thoughts like they're not okay yeah yeah she like doesn't know enough in his mind to understand the play yeah and he is inexplicably attracted to all of this Well, because he thinks he can mold her. That's the point. He thinks that she's clever. It's not that I don't think he thinks she's stupid. I think he just thinks she's ignorant. And I think he thinks that women, especially young women in this society, are more likely to be ignorant. He's worried about it, though, because I'm about to read a passage 
but to kind of get into all this, <laughs> no, to get into all of this a little bit more. But he does specifically say that he does not want his future bride. He doesn't say May specifically, but whoever he marries to be a simpleton. So like, mm-hmm. it is something that he's cognizant of that there is like a line that he's not quite sure how to cross. Yeah, how to walk almost. You know, like I want you to be moldable. But also, there are probably some women out there that are too stupid to be molded, you know, like, in his mind. I'm going to go on a whole thing when you're done reading this. <laughs> I'm ready. It's a, you, you can go on it now. It's a long passage. I just, like, I feel like that is also something that modern men do. And not to get too personal, but the personal is political, goddammit. But, like, I have dated many a man who thinks that, like, not the person I'm currently with, who is much older than me in a lot of ways, but, like, men who are a little bit older who think that, like, that gives them more worldly advantage over me and, like, think that that means that you are moldable. And, I, like, even my father says stuff like that sometimes, I feel. Like, the willingness to, like, mold women and show them what is the right way. And I feel, I don't know, I feel like many men do that and I hate it. Because that's such Yeah, a it's, not, it's not... She just really... It's grooming. That's what it is. Yeah. I just... Warren really gets to, like, with Newland Archer specifically, she just gets to everything that just kind of sucks about men, to be honest. <laughs> and she shoves it into this one character, you know? Like, reading from his point of view is like... Sorry, she did that with Ethan Frome, too, though. Just so everyone... Spoilers for Ethan Frome. I feel like Ethan Frome also has a lot of these problems. From what yeah. I read and back in ninth grade. <laughs> For sure, Ethan Frome had a different set of circumstances. That's a whole other episode. Ethan Frome versus Summer. That was much more based on autobiographical stuff. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> But yeah, like she she just has a talent for taking everything that sucks and just being like, all right, and now it's going to be this character. To be fair, in other books, she does it with female characters too, but with different kinds of commentary. Like the custom of the country is a fucking ride. Regardless, here is this passage where he talks about May for the first time, like deeply. Okay. And he contemplated her absorbed young face with a thrill of possessorship in which pride in his own masculine initiation was mingled with a tender reverence for her abysmal purity. Where we'd fossed together by the Italian lakes, he thought, somewhat hazily confusing the scene of his projected honeymoon with the masterpieces of literature with which it would be his manly privilege to reveal to his bride. It was only that afternoon that May Welland had let him guess that she cared, New York's consecrated phrase of maiden avowal, and already his imagination, leaping ahead of the engagement ring, the betrothal kiss, and the march from Lohengrin, pictured her at his side in some scene of old European witchery. He did not in the least wish the future Mrs. Newland Archer to be a simpleton. He meant her, thanks to his enlightening companionship, to develop a, to develop a social tact and readiness of wit enabling her to hold her own with the most popular married woman of the younger set, in which it was the recognized custom to attract masculine homage while playfully discouraging it. If he had probed to the bottom of his vanity, as he sometimes nearly did, he would have found there that the wish that his wife should be as worldly wise and as eager to please as the married lady whose charms had held his fancy through two mildly agitated years, without, of course, any hit, hint of the frailty which had so nearly marred that unhappy being's life and had disarranged his own plans for a whole winter. 
Hey, listener. Come closer. No, really. Closer. Just a little bit closer. That might be too close. One step back. There. Perfect. You're perfect. How do you feel about murder? How do you feel about spooky shit? And how do you feel about coffee? If you feel warmly toward any of these, then join us every Saturday on The Dark Roast. Join us, where our souls may or may not be darker than the coffee we drink. We can be found on Podcast, Stitcher, oh my fucking god. (laughs) We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and Google Play. Thank you. Okay, so Wharton is essentially talking about her opinions right there because she talks about she she talks about how he doesn't know this part of himself but that second part can you talk to me a little bit about that second part what is he talking about is that still about may or is that about the other woman so the the second part is about the other woman so he had the the implication here is that he has an affair with a married lady who is really worldly and wise and like intellectually his equal but because her marriage is so bad is like deeply unhappy Mm-hmm. And this whole thing affects him his life for exactly one winter season. Okay. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to be clear. I know I knew that happened. That does happen. Spoiler alert. I mean, we don't see it, but that is talked about in the book further. Yeah. Okay. And that's what ruined his life. So how did it mar his plans? It mar it ruined her life and her unhappiness oh. marred his plans. Oh, okay. His but plans even though Mary. this whole no, just like she was unhappy and made him unhappy for a winter, essentially. Oh, okay. Interesting. So essentially what he's boiling down or what she Wharton is boiling down is the fact that this woman who he was with for two years mm-hmm. has a really miserable life and he supposedly cares about her. But in actuality, it took him like one winter season to like just be rid of her and be done with the whole thing. And now and, he's with something fresh. And now he's with something fresh. An innocent that he can mold to be that woman, but less unhappy. Because, of course, his marriage will be very happy. Okay. Okay. I understand. All right. So what is Warren saying about him and his vanity, specifically? Can you translate? Can you translate Warren for me? Warren? 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 Not Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> it's Edith Wharton. They're um, very different people. <laughs> so I think that there's a couple things happening here. I think like we've already talked about, there's this desire to mold. There's also oh, the process, the possessorship of masculine initiation really fucking uh, <laughs> did not make me feel good. But I think that when it comes to his vanity it's the dead flowers again right like and also i think a distinct lack of feeling so like he plucks this flower of an affair and it's kind of great for a while and then it dies so he wants that same flower but with a fresh fresh bloom you know Um, oh so it's doomed to die anyway though because it's already dead he already plucked it yeah that's what i think at least okay so what would the if we're going through this metaphor what would be a flower that is, like, left unplucked? Can you have a relationship that way? Or is Wharton saying that, like, all love is doomed to die? Or just all of Wharton's love? Uh, not Wharton. Newland's love. <laughs> I don't know, to be honest with you. I think... So the synopsis gets at the fact that Archer ultimately falls in love 
with Ellen, who is a relative of May's who is coming out of a disgraced marriage. And I think that to a certain extent, she is a flower that has been unplucked because societal pressures keep them from actually being together. And also she is, if we're, if we're going along this metaphor, she has already bloomed when she meets Archer oh, to the okay. extent that, you know, she's been married. She's older than May. She has thoughts and things feelings and opinions that are like very real and very concrete and she doesn't need to be molded she is who she is already and that's not to say that may doesn't we just maybe don't get to see it from newland's perspective no we definitely don't but we do get to see his view of ellen in that way so i i wonder if that's a flower left unplucked but i I, honestly she's bleak enough that i think it might just be that all love is doomed to die (laughs) all flowers get plucked and die yeah, I I feel like it could kind of be a, I, it could be what you just said about the that being in Flower Left Unplucked based off of, because we both read this novel and so we know how it ends. I feel like that is a very apt metaphor, like the fact that they can't ever actually be together. It's the idea. Yeah. The idea of love. So yeah, then all love would be doomed to die anyway, because once it's an actualization, it's not beautiful anymore. Which I think is really interesting because we're already starting to see that with the beginning, I guess the beginning of the end, technically, of his relationship (laughs) with May, right? Because she has admitted, what does it say? She has let him know that she has cared, which is apparently the consecrated phrase of made in a vowel in New York. So, like, she's already done it, right? Like, they've already set the ball rolling, so it's already dying, you know? It's that admittance that kills things, almost. Because it's already been plucked. Yeah. So it is already dying. Yeah. But it still it still smells nice and it's still pretty. And it feels new. Yeah. Which is such a disgusting way to look and think and act in relationships. But here we go. Newland Archer, scum of the earth. Yeah. Misogyny. <laughs> I said the way men treat women in relationships. Not all men, of course, but like no. that's how a lot of relationships end up. And that's why men aren't seen as people who can like hold monogamous relationships. And to be fair, also to this time period, this is the way the majority of men viewed relationships and things. Um, So, like, Wharton's probably not even really calling out someone specific, although we'll get more into her biography later. This is just kind of, like, the way relationships were sort of formulated in the 1910s and 1920s. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to move on to your next point? Or do you want to keep talking about the flowers? No, it's okay. I got I got lost in that metaphor. <laughs> I guess the whole thing that I'm curious about is that so she really heavily critiques society in the United States specifically, which is interesting because she actually spent significantly more of her life living in France, but always wrote about the United States. She critiques it especially through a class lens, and I think in this first chapter we do see some of that coming through and We could go into the connections between class and feminism, but I think what is really compelling in this chapter is Wharton's opinion of her own main character. Mm -hmm. Um, So much of this first chapter has Newland just being so unaware of himself uh, and very little exposition that furthers his thoughts on anything until these two paragraphs um, so what do we how do we think that Wharton's narration of Newland changes in this passage and what does it say about 
what she thinks of Newland and men like him at this time. Because for me, part of the reason I pulled those two paragraphs specifically was because her tone changes. Like, the the omniscient narrator's tone changes. Prior to that, it was just kind of like Newland just sort of jabbering away with his own thoughts. And here we start getting some, like, really barbed criticism at the fact that Newland doesn't probe himself very deeply or the world around him. Okay, so wait, what's the question again? Can you simplify that for me? I'm sorry. You're all good. Uh, my, I guess my ultimate question is, what do we think Wharton's opinion on her own main character is? Do you think she's trying to paint him in a positive light or a negative yeah. light? Or I think she's trying to paint him in an accurate light. I think, yeah, I think that she's like, she's giving you this a main character, but as we see that paragraph, she's very much distinguishing that this narrative is biased because she dispels from Newland's thoughts. Like, it's usually Newland's thoughts. It's it's third person, but it's always focused on Newland's thoughts. And then she, like, throws that away. And then she's like, but by the way, Newland's kind of awful in these ways to kind of let the reader know that as we go through the story so that we can view him with a critical lens as we go through the story and know that he's flawed. Um. I don't think she hates Newland, maybe. I mean, maybe she does. I don't know. I don't know that much about Wharton. I'm not Maggie Case, but... <laughs> I'm not I'm Maggie like, Case either. Oh, sorry. I am not... Yes. Neither of us are Maggie Case anymore. Um, <laughs> Although I but, don't use my last name on the podcast, so we gotta cut that whole part out. <laughs> okay. I understand. Um, yeah. I, I just think that... I think that she's obviously trying to get at some sort of class critique and she's trying to be as accurate as possible and you can't necessarily tell a good story with a character who is criticized at every turn right because then the readers will hate him so i think it's important for us to kind of sympathize with newland and get his thoughts in order for the story to be accurate and also readable yeah do we think that her kind of barbs at him as a narrator though how do that how does that influence that you know because we do for the most part you're right just get newland's thoughts but when there's exposition about what newland thinks it's like savage (laughs) it's a reminder uh, that we're not supposed to trust him and that he's imperfect do we think that is potentially an act of i guess not an act of but do we think that is is kind of a, a feminist way to 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 view her as a writer to like be undermining him or Oh, okay. So it's like subversive, you think, because he is our, he's our main male figure. Although I don't think he's like, as the book goes on, I don't think he's like the most toxically masculine character. I think in a lot of ways, he's a lot more sympathetic than a lot of other characters. Which I think, which I think is interesting because she still continually uses these little pieces of like exposition to be like, but he's still this. Or he still doesn't think this way. Or he still does think this way. So how do we think about that in a feminist lens? I don't know if I... hmm. I don't know if I can think about it in a feminist lens. Because to me, I think... I mean, I think that the act of writing about issues that affect women is probably inherently feminist. And I think Edith Wharton, like we were saying before, is an important figure in woman's literature or like in literature in general and the fact that she is a woman is great but i don't think i don't think it's inherently feminist for her to like subversively 
just kind of remind her that her main character is flawed and maybe fucked up. I think it's kind of like a little woman situation in that, like, she's writing this for an audience and she needs to be, in order to sell the copy, she needs to make the character likable enough and not criticize him enough to, like, have it be a readable story and a fun story. I think um, but she, she wants us to think about it critically. I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because I read a really interesting article preparing for this um, podcast episode um, by Gia Tolentino that was published in The New Yorker uh, late last year in 2019. And it was about the custom of the country, which is probably her third most famous novel. But Mm -hmm. she brought up this really interesting point. Let me see if I can find it. Um, Oh, where is it? Where is it? Sorry. I have so many tabs open right now. (laughs) Damn it. I totally lost it. I'm sorry. You know that Um, DeFranco has come up on the podcast before, right? You use the word DeFranco quite a lot. Yeah. I know. That's been published, just so you know. Okay. I know, but most of my, (laughs) no, my professional stuff is still all under my maiden name. Okay. I understand. Okay. I just wanted to let you know while we were, while you were paused, I was like, oh boy, wait a second. No, no, no. You're you're all good. All of my professional stuff is still under Maggie Case. My only thing that's connected to me in my life that says DeFranco is Facebook because my name isn't legally changed. Oh, I didn't know that. You didn't legally change your name? No, I've been lazy about it. Oh, because it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, and it's kind of expensive. Um, yeah, there was a whole, um, there's a podcast I like called Unladylike, and mm-hmm. they did a whole episode on, like, what a hassle it is to change your name as a part of, like, you know, changing your name and why people choose to do it or why they don't. Yeah. yeah a hassle. So that's how I know it's a hassle. <laughs> it is a hassle. There's just so many pieces of paper you need to like get. And it's really annoying. I swear to God, if I don't find this quote, it was so good. <laughs> it like touches on exactly what you were just talking about. I thought I pulled it-, it. Blah 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 blah. Is it from the New Yorker article? Yeah. Um, oh, but it wasn't pulled. I see. I give up. Okay. Essentially, though, something that this article talks about that I think is relevant is that I agree with you. If I think if Wharton was as savage as she wanted to be all the time, it wouldn't have gotten published. Like, there definitely was a, a pulling back, or at the very least... In the Age of Innocence, it wouldn't have been as popular as it was. Because in the custom of the country, which that article is about, she is ruthless. Like, it's on a next level, like, the cultural critique that she does there. And while it's popular, it did not have the same, like, critical acclaim, so to speak, as the House of Mirth or the Age of Innocence. And I think an interesting question that the... um tolentino brings up that we've kind of been dancing around is like what is the feminist part is it 
the critique of her characters as humans who don't treat or look at women correctly or is it the fact that the heroines are the focus of this book and she's telling stories of, of women's struggles in this society and where do we draw those lines especially in the knowing that like her intention was not necessarily to sit down and write a feminist book you know okay and total team total that person you just mentioned that's the person from the 1980s who talked about no, no that's the okay, person who wrote the new yorker article okay interesting all right yeah i don't know i think for me it could kind of be both but for me this isn't a feminist book even though we do see both female characters grow um and they are they do move beyond the expectations of their society i think in a way um this to me does not like come across as a feminist book in the in a lot of the like in the way that a lot of the other books that maggie and i read do but i do think that yeah it could be a feminist act simply especially at this time period to write about women's issues to write about the way women are treated and specifically within the woman's relationships, right? That's what Maggie and I are talking about right now. We're talking about how uh, men at this time period in this context are behaving to women in their relationships with them. And that's not something that we probably saw a whole lot of. Um, It's like kind of feminist in the way that Jane Austen is feminist, right? Like she's writing about domestic stuff and that wasn't something that we saw before. Yeah, I I think for me, it, it's interesting that you say that because I do view this as a feminist novel just because I read so much of the other shit that was coming out at this time. And it is so different and it is so critical mm-hmm. specifically of the role that women are forced to play in society um, and those societal expectations. But I agree that if we're comparing it to a modern book, like, no, this is not <laughs> a feminist situation. Well- I mean, recently we but we read Little Woman and Anne of Green Gables, and I think those are both inherently more feminist than this is. Um, I think Little House on the Prairie simply be, simply because they have like female characters as their leads, if nothing else, like likable female characters who are literally transcending society and their societal roles, and those are like not modern books. Um, and I'm not saying I don't know. I guess it's not like. I'm not critiquing it at all. It's just like, this is a book told from, and it's supposed to be told from like a a kind of, you know, from a misogynist perspective. But that doesn't mean that Wharton isn't critical of that. And she does point it out. Um, She just can't do it outright. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with you. I just, I think I feel conflicted about it in general. Um, which, from the scholarship I was looking at, is how most people feel. There's a large subsect of, like, scholars out there who think that Wharton was, like, dead-ass a feminist writer. And I think yeah. I can see it more in her other books, frankly. Like, The Age of Innocence is lauded as being one of one of them. But I see it more in The House of Mirth or The Custom of the Country, although The Custom of the Country is a whole sis- different situation. Uh, or even Summer. Um so it's just like interesting and I guess I keep coming back to author intention too but then even if we're talking about Anne of Green Gables or Little Woman it's not necessarily like those authors were also sitting down being like I'm gonna write a feminist novel you know like intention if we're talking about a historical piece of work is framed differently I think 
Yeah, I will say, though, from what little I do know about, like, at least from little, like, little woman about Alcott, like, Alcott was a radical, and her entire family yeah. was a radical, was radical, and, like, they were closer, Alcott was probably very close to, like, our traditional understanding of what a feminist is for the time period that she was. And I'm sure that um, Montgomery was as well. Like, they were kind of knowingly writing female characters who weren't typical um, for little girls to read, too. Which is also, like, kind of a amazing sort of feminist thing. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's also, like, I think it also does kind of depend on how you read it. So, like, one of Wharton's contemporaries and someone she was actually good friends with is Henry James, who is one of my favorite authors, and I haven't read everything by him, but, like, I tend to view a lot of his work, when it centers around women, at least, as being feminist. Even though he's a man, maybe a gay man, maybe an asexual man, there's conflicting accounts. And I've read other people's analysis of it and being like, oh, women are just objects in his work. And me being like, what? What? <laughs> So, I don't know. It could be, like, a personal preference thing, too. And it is also, like, not that this language is, like, Shakespeare or anything, but it is a little bit less accessible. Um, unless, like, to the point than a lot of the other stuff that we're reading today. Yeah, which is, I think, to your point as well, is also, like... It even muddies the things, even. It Sorry. can. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that you bring up Henry James, actually, because she loved his early work and hated his later work. It was like a thing in their relationship. Uh, Most people did. Most people hated his later work. He had like a whole French phase where he tried to be artsy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he he was a time. I think for me, where I fall is that I do, I think, ult- ultimately end up agreeing with this idea of lurking feminism, that like these themes are there and they're important. And I do think they ultimately ended up informing more feminist things that happened later but I I think I I agree with the like it's not it's not at the forefront right because it has to be kind of subversive at the time so Mm -hmm. I think for me the idea of like lurking feminism is really kind of the best way to describe it it's there it's in the undertones but it's not like the thing you know at at the very least the way that like her discussions on classism are a thing right like that is what she is known for but I think that the feminism the undertones are there. There are definitely ways to read it as feminist, feminist, you know? Yeah, I think that there are definitely undertones. And I think that, like, she's definitely doing some sort of, like, positive action. I do think it's important to mention, though, uh, that relating this to feminism, it is not particularly inclusive feminism of anything outside of class struggles. When it comes to racism and anti-Semitism especially, Wharton was very much kind of a woman of her time until very late in her life and she doesn't have a lot of great representation of the way she talks about Jewish characters a lot of them are very disparaging except for in the house of mirth which is a a different a kind of a one-off situation until later in life and she also doesn't really ever address people of color at all so I, I think that's also just worth noting that by talking about lurking feminism even it's not trying to say that like this is what's setting the tone it is definitely very much like white woman feminism it just happens to also be inclusive of class issues but not everything else you know yeah that's fair and to be fair those other books that i mentioned that we had read recently were also white woman feminism (laughs) so something i think is interesting about wharton though is that like even though she wasn't as we've talked about aligned with like the suffragette movement 
she led a very progressive and kind of outsider lifestyle almost throughout her entire life. The poor, this poor woman went, went through a doozy. So I'm going to just run through the highlights for you. This is not to say, like, this is not to say that it, she was more or less feminist by any means. But I will say that as a woman living outside the mold, she does tick those boxes for sure. Yeah. So Edith Wharton was born Edith Newbold Jones in 1862. So right around Civil War era. The Joneses were so rich. You know the phrase, keeping up with the Kardashians? That phrase was originally keeping up with the Joneses talking about her ancestral family in New York City. So, like, we're talking about that Wait, kind of... Wharton? Wharton is the Joneses? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, that's, like, the kind of money we're talking about here. She marries Teddy Wharton after a really tough childhood where she was pretty much self-educated in her father's library was obsessed with books, very shy kid, was sick a lot, was also considered to be very ugly, which we've touched upon, this poor this poor little thing. And so she had kind of a rough sort of coming out, as they did in society back then. There was a boy she was interested in who she thought she was, who was going to propose, and he didn't, and so she ended up with Teddy. Teddy and her had, like, the single most leveled marriage on the face of the planet. They never had children. They had a lot of dogs, and they just didn't have very much in common Partially because it's kind of up in the air whether Teddy had bipolar disorder or was in the really, really late stages of syphilis where it starts eating at your brain and makes you act similarly to bipolar disorder. The the jury is out. So she had a really rough time while she was living in Lenox and Newport, Rhode Island at that time, Lenox, Massachusetts. The lack of kids was like kind of something of a consternation, kind of not. Money was kind of an issue between the two of them because, you know, Teddy had access to all of her inherited money. But I believe she was able, once she started making a lot of money writing books, to create her own finances and live financially independent, which was very unusual at the time. And something she pushed hard for for herself was to be able to have that financial independence, which was good because they got divorced, (laughs) which was also kind of unusual for the time. She, he had multiple affairs and it, Seemed to kind of, like, take a toll on her, even though they were in a loveless marriage. Um, She had one affair and one question mark. So the one affair she did have was in her late 40s to an absolute cad back and forth from France. He really fucking tugged her around. But he also... What's a cad? Like a, like a, like a fuck boy. Uh, Okay, so she had a... Okay, okay, I understand. I'm falling. Continue. But she, in one of her letters describes that he apparently gave her her very first orgasm at the age of 47. So, like... Nice! Get it written! That affair lasted on and off about two years because he was with other women while he was in France and she was still stuck in the States. It was a big deal that she went and had an affair while she was still married, even though Teddy had been having affairs the entire time. And she also had a best friend who she ended up living with her entire life. And it is unclear, frankly, whether they were ever, like, romantically together. She knew him pretty much her entire life. Um, And they ended their lives living together in France until he died before she did. But the only reason we know about what happened between her and Morton Fullerton, who is the fuckboy in question, is because, so she burned all of his letters to her, and he did not honor her wishes, and all of her letters to him are still in existence today but walter Uh, berry who is the best friend 
did honor her wishes so all of the correspondence between them except for like two letters is destroyed so we'll never know what happened between the two of them she produced 40 books in her lifetime of not just fiction she also wrote ghost stories she was really into ghost stories she wrote about architecture she wrote about gardening she wrote nonfiction. she had a lot of varied interests the age of innocence the house of mirth and the custom of the country tied probably with ethan Frome are her most famous novels but she died uh right before world war ii started after she gave so much money and time and effort in world war one that she like decimated her own fortune and money was kind of concerning for her afterwards so she really at the end of her life she was like a hero of the french people for all she did for the war effort so she as she never remarried she never had another romantic confirmed romantic relationship so she very much by living her life fought against all of those things in society that she critiques in her novels at the very least and she did live outside the mold which i think is super interesting just looking at not just the age of innocence but lots of her other books as well just as context to know that she was not she was not here to just kind of like be someone's plaything you know she was really um a woman unto her own whatever that meant at the time you know whatever that meant for her she was a badass bitch, is what she, we're trying to say. She was. She was really cool. If only she could have been less racist and anti-Semitic. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, well. <laughs> and that's what you need to know about Edith Wharton, a dissertation by Maggie. <laughs> All right, Maggie. Do we want to talk about anything else? I'm good if you are. All right. All right. What are you reading right now? God, a lot, actually. Uh, I'm reading Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year. I'm reading Our Dark Duet by Victoria Schwab. I'm reading Mad Ship by Robin Hobb. Is that it? And I'm reading Adulthood Adulthood Rights for the Podcast by Octavia E. Butler. That is definitely a lot. I'm also reading Adulthood Rights for the podcast. I'm almost done with Ghost Bride, which I've been audiobooking. It's gotten like really good now. So now it's happening outside of the kitchen, which is why we're almost done. Um, and I, drumroll please, went to my local library today and I picked up some books, which is like the first time I picked up books at my local library. I'm ashamed to say since I have lived in the city. I've only, well, I've lived here over a year, so I don't know. It's pretty sad. It's pretty, it's pretty disturbing. But anyway, I picked up books in my local library and I found one that looks like a fun read and it's called The Daughters of Temperance, Temperance Hobbs. So like, it's a nice little, are you, are you familiar with it? No, it just has a cool title. Yeah, it's going to be a nice little witchcraft book. I don't know anything else about it, but I'm excited. <laughs> yes. Okay. What's your homework? I think my homework is that I would like to read more Wharton. After I was done with that job, I like was done with her for a while just because she consumed my days for so long. But mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I miss her. She is a good writer. Like the the woman can write a book. She's one of Roxanne Gay's favorite authors. We didn't have a time to talk about that, but like. Roxanne Gay loves her. Kind of similarly, you know how with Alcott, we ended up finding a bunch of people who are like, uh, Alcott had all of these problems, but I love her. Yeah. Wharton, it seems like, has a similar sort of following, where it, all of these people are like, she has all of these problems, but I love her. Aww. And I think I might be one of those people, but I, honestly, I'd probably have to like read one of her books now to really know for sure, because it's been a couple of years, you know? So like, 
let's let's bring back Wharton in my life. What about you? What's your homework? Well, I do want to read The House of Mirth, but I don't want to, like, promise that it's my homework because the likelihood of me doing that in the... Oh, why are you... Maggie is shaking her head. I don't like, like The House of Mirth. Oh, well, you said that it's, like, it's, it's like very similar to Age of Innocence, right? No, it's very different from Age of Innocence. It's just her oh. other most popular book. Oh, well, I don't know. I hate Ethan Frome, though. I hate Ethan Frome with a passion, and I can say that, and I've lived in the fucking Berkshires, so, like, suck it, Wharton... But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what my homework will be. Probably to stop like judging people for their vanity and status. And I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about like the like woman in relationships and like the roles that relationships play on us as women, which I constantly am thinking about. But maybe I'll write something about it. Who knows? <laughs> Very nice. All, All right. right. Oh. Review us uh, and send us send us a picture of your review so that we can see it. Because if you're not in the U.S., which a lot of you aren't, we can't see your reviews. So if you send us a picture and you give us an address of where to send a sticker, we will send you a sticker with our logo on it. That's yeah. true facts. That's okay. it. Oh, next week, what are we reading? Next week, we're coming back to talk about Adulthood Rights by Octavia E. Butler, which is the sequel to Dawn, which we read last week. So send It's really me. good. It is really it's like, <laughs> I'm really excited about this whole trilogy. Yeah, I was reading it before Maggie started reading it, and I, like, had to try to not spoil it for her, and now she's probably above me. But the point is, like, I was reading it, and I was like, oh, there's all of these things that we can need to talk about, but I'm trying to write my notes after because it's a whole fucking novel, and so, oh, it's very hard. Okay. All right. Goodbye, friends. See you next week. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.